Amen. Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be with you this morning. Happy New Year. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron, and I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Wellspring. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning. Seriously, thank you, and uh, Happy New Year. Now, if you would have told me a year ago that I would be essentially teaching to an empty room, and maybe later this morning that I'd be teaching outside and everyone would have masks on, I would have thought you were crazy, right? 2020 has been a crazy year. Can we just kind of say that? 2020 has been absolutely nuts. I remember, you know, back in March, the, the night that I kind of, it clicked for me that COVID was really going to shake things up and things were really going to change. I was watching uh, this clip of Mark Cuban. He's the Dallas Cowboy or Dallas Mavericks basketball team owner, and he was reacting on, to the notification he got on his phone in the middle of, an, of his NBA game of how the NBA season was going to be suspended indefinitely. And the, face, it, the, the look on his face as he was staring at his phone was absolutely priceless. He was in complete shock of, of just kind of the, the, the events that were going to unfold. And then soon after that, I mean, businesses begin to close, restaurants begin to close, stay-at-home orders, all these things, schools moving to online, church moving to all online. And the thing is, is I just didn't think it would last this long, right? You know, on top of that, of this pandemic, of, of taking just so many lives and the seriousness of it, we've just come out of a tumultuous and divided political election cycle, revealing just the deep pain and divide in our country. I mean, racial and social tensions have just been at an all-time high, especially over this past summer here in California. We've experienced a record number of fires displacing and destroying people's homes. And even on top of that, just your own personal lives, I'm sure, have radically shifted over the past nine or ten months. You know, many of us have become homeschool parents overnight and have no idea kind of what we're doing with that. Some of us have lost jobs or have had to shift to working from home and just figuring out the dynamic of what it means to work from home and juggling schedules and kids and all these sorts of things have just completely upended our way of life. Family and social dynamics, just how we are able to see one another has radically shifted as well. And this holiday season has been like none other than we've experienced before. Many of us isolated and not able to see close friends and family. And while many of us perhaps maybe feel somewhat hopeful that the vaccine is kind of around the corner and there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel, there is still, as we enter into 2021, a deep sense of anxiety and fear and uncertainty as we head into the new year. Now, with all that, with all that said, I want to this morning take us back to the scriptures. Take us back, actually, to Luke 24. Now, I know I taught from Luke 24 last week, but this week we're going to pick up where we left off and kind of finish that chapter both kind of looking back at 2020 and seeing what God perhaps has for us in 2021 and hopefully getting us ready for our new teaching series as we're going to begin the Old Testament starting next week. Now, in a moment like this, like we've been talking about, with all this pain and uncertainty and sadness in the air, what do the scriptures, what does Jesus have to say to us in this moment? Now, three things for us this morning as we look at Luke 24. Number one, the person of Jesus. I think in a moment like this, we need to understand and see the person of Jesus in a deeper way. Number two, the perspective of Jesus. What is Jesus' perspective on events, on the world, on who we are? And then finally, the power of Jesus. So the person, perspective, and power of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Luke 24, starting in verse 36. Luke writes this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he, Jesus, said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? 
See my hands and my feet. That is I. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Here Jesus shows up. Remember, this is the first Easter, and at this point in the story, most if not all of the disciples have not yet figured out that Jesus is back from the dead. And here Jesus, he comes to them, he reveals himself to them, these disciples. But did you notice in the text, what is the emotional state of the disciples at this point? How do the disciples respond? Well, the text says that they're startled and they're afraid. And even Jesus says that there are doubts in their hearts. But how does Jesus even respond to that? How does Jesus respond to the fear and the anxiety and the worry and the doubts of the disciples? What does Jesus do? Let me put it to you like this. Jesus meets them where they are at. He reveals himself to them. He draws near to them. He shows them his body, his wounds, the scars, the marks from his crucifixion. And even still, the text says in verse 41, after Jesus does that, the disciples still disbelieved. They still are in this state of not fully getting it, still disbelieving. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus chastise them? Does Jesus kind of berate them with, how come you can't just figure this out? No. He draws near. He has a meal with them. He spends time with them. And you notice what else Jesus said. He said to the the disciples, peace to you. This is his desire. This is his heart. He wants to bring them peace in this moment of anxiety and fear and doubt and uncertainty. Now, this word peace, we've talked about this before, is not just simply the absence of conflict or war. Yes, it has some of those connotations, but biblical peace is this deeper, richer concept of wholeness, completeness, right ordering in the world between God and us and one another and just everything as being as it should be, as Cornelius Plantica likes to say. And it's into this moment Jesus reveals himself. It's into this moment that Jesus shows himself. He draws near to them and offers the peace that only he can bring in moments of doubt and uncertainty and fear. Friends, I don't know about you, but this past year has been, for me, full of uncertainty. Full of sort of fear and and worry and anxiety. Not really sure where this whole thing is going. Not really sure where Jesus is working in the midst of all this. But see, friends, this is the the thing. What is your view of the person of Jesus in moments of doubt and uncertainty and disbelief? How do you picture Jesus in those moments? Do you picture him just coming to you with this, this kind of harsh tone of, why can't you just figure it out? Why can't you just believe and press on? Or do you picture Jesus drawing near, revealing himself to you, his wounds and all? See, friends, this is why I think it's so crucial that we have a right understanding of the person of Jesus. Perhaps this year, for your own self, this year has revealed perhaps a lot of darkness in your own self. Things that you didn't really know that were there have just started to come to the surface. Perhaps it's anger or impatience. You didn't realize how angry you could potentially get or how impatient you potentially could get. And like a cup of water being shaken that just kind of spills over, 2020 has been exactly that for many of us. A year that has shaken us and honestly has revealed things that honestly perhaps were already there. But we just didn't realize it until this year. Let me put it to you like this. What is your view of the person of Jesus in those moments? 
Let me say it like this. In 89 chapters, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only once, only one time does Jesus ever reveal and say, this is what my heart is like. Only one time in all four Gospels does Jesus say, my heart, the core of who I am, is blank. Do you know where this is? Matthew 11. That famous passage we keep coming back to here at Wellspring. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus' heart, Jesus' person, the core of who he is, he is gentle and lowly in heart. Or how about this? Do you know what the most quoted verse by the Bible in the Bible is? The most repeated verse in all of Scripture? It's not John 3.16. That's what we like to quote all the time. But the most quoted verse by the Bible in the Bible? Exodus 34.6. Where God says to the children of Israel, God says to Moses, I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love or abounding in steadfast love. See, friends, for those of us in this moment of doubt and fear and insecurity, for those of us who are weary and burdened, Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly. Jesus' person is gentle and lowly. For those of us who are struggling, for those of us who are at the end of ourselves, for those of us who come in dependence and humility and cry out, God, where are you in all of this? The doubts and the fears are just flooding and they're all over. God says, I'm gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in loyal love. This is why, again, that is so crucial that we understand the true person of Jesus, his heart for us in times of difficulty, which leads me to my second point, the perspective of Jesus. We need the perspective of Jesus. Now, where do we find the perspective of Jesus? Well, first and foremost from the scriptures. Look with me at verse 44, Luke 24. Jesus says this, then he said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything from the law of Moses to the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, in a moment where Jesus comes to his disciples and reveals himself to these disciples who are disbelieving and doubting and full of fear, Jesus, yes, reveals himself, he meets them where they're at, and also he takes them back to the text. He takes them back to the scriptures. Now, did you notice, though, in verse 44, how did Jesus refer to the scriptures? Well, he refers to them in this kind of three-part sequence. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, what's the significance of that? Is Jesus just saying, okay, yeah, you know, the law of Moses, these are like the greatest hits, if you will, that all point to me. The law of Moses, that's like the beginning of the Bible, and that's really important, you know. And the prophets, I mean, yeah, especially the prophets, right? Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, prince of peace, something about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Yeah, the prophets, they predict about the Messiah. And oh, yeah, the Psalms, those are really important. I quoted that on the cross, Psalm 22, right? Is Jesus kind of just giving, like, the greatest hits that all point to him? Well, Not necessarily. Yes, for sure, those passages for sure do indeed point to Jesus the Messiah. But what Jesus refers to the scriptures in this sort of three-part sequence, he's tapping into an already existing Jewish tradition of his day of how they refer to the scriptures. I don't have time to get into this. We have first century evidence of other Jewish thinkers and writers referring to the scriptures in this three-part sequence. The law, the prophets, and the psalms or the writings. And when Jesus is saying that this whole library of Scripture, what we would call the Old Testament, is pointing to him and that he is fulfilling all of these Scriptures, he is making a massive claim. 
what we would call the Old Testament, which makes up at least three quarters of our English Bible. That whole storyline is a storyline in search of an ending, and that ending, that climax, is Jesus. And this is a, a massive claim, friends, that these ancient Jewish texts point to him. Now, let me just kind of take a step back and give us, kind of break this down a little bit. And give us three what I think are vital reasons as to why the Old Testament should matter for us as his disciples. Now, we can do plenty more reasons other than three, but here's just three for us this morning. Number one, Jesus. Jesus would be, I would say, the first reason why we should cherish and value the Old Testament. We've been alluding to this these past two weeks, but Jesus himself, on numerous occasions, quotes from and alludes to the Old Testament. Luke chapter 4, Jesus' sort of first public sermon, if you will. He's there in the synagogue, and he begins to teach and then quotes from the Isaiah scroll, quotes from Isaiah 61. Or in John chapter 5, Jesus is dialoguing with the religious leaders. And he's going back and forth, and he tells the religious leaders, hey, you think that by searching the scriptures, you will get eternal life, but you fail to realize that these scriptures point to me. John 5 verse 41. Or here in Luke 24, not once, but twice, Jesus has given this sort of epic Bible study to his disciples on showing how the law and the prophets and the writings all point to him. Now to be just a fly on the wall, to be a part of that Bible study, how amazing would that be? The point being, whether it's Jesus in the wilderness, quoting scripture to the Satan, or Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm 22 and numerous other scriptures, Jesus was soaked in the Old Testament, what we have as our English, in our English Bibles. Second reason, though, the apostles. The apostles, the first followers of Jesus, Peter, John, the gospel writers. Again, they themselves are constantly alluding and quoting to the Old Testament. Paul himself, an early first century follower of Jesus, had a moment where he was discipling and, and uh, mentoring another young follower, Timothy. And at one point, Paul would write to Timothy and say, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Messiah, 2 Timothy 3.15. Paul would go on to say that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be equipped and complete for every good work. Friends, when Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is able to make you wise for salvation and all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and training so that the man of God may be equipped. He's referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament has yet to be written at that point. Now for sure, I believe the New Testament is inspired, is profitable, all those sorts of things. But in context, hear what Paul is saying. What might seem strange to us, the Old Testament, for Paul is an avenue into the wisdom of God. Is a way into living the way that God would call us to live. To be trained, corrected, to be complete, whole men and women of God, that we would be equipped for the work that each of us have been called to by God. That God has a calling on each of your lives. That God has a, a plan and a purpose for each of your lives. And to be equipped into that calling at the very least, implies that we would be soaked in these scriptures. Friends, for Jesus and Paul and the first apostles, these, these scriptures were their media for the day. This is what their brains were soaked on. Their brains were not melted by Twitter and YouTube and cable news. Their brains were soaked in the scriptures. So Jesus, number one, the apostles, number two, number three, kind of put it like this, some core ideas. Things like baptism, communion, 
even words like gospel and redemption, or Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, things like creation and new creation and hell and judgment, these big concepts that we just kind of see in the New Testament, all of these concepts have their origin in the Old Testament. And to adequately understand how the New Testament authors are talking about these things, we need to understand how the Old Testament authors talked about these things. See, friends, to be a follower of Jesus, we cannot unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That we have to be soaked in these scriptures. This is why I cannot, I cannot wait to begin this journey with us together through 2021. And honestly, for probably going to take a little bit longer than 2021, as we begin to journey through the Old Testament. Next week, Tony's going to start us off in Genesis chapter 1, and we're just going to begin this journey looking at the Bible that Jesus read. The scriptures that Jesus loved, the scriptures that Jesus cherished. And see how this whole story, just like Jesus has told us in Luke 24, points to him. And to see that these scriptures give us the wisdom we need in a moment like this. And that offer the training and the reproof and the correction that we need. That we would be complete and equipped for the work that God has called us to in a moment like this. Now, in conjunction with that. We want to encourage you, especially for those that have yet to really engage with the scriptures. This would be a perfect time to begin that journey of regularly engaging with the scriptures. Now, I get that, you know, if you've been around really any good Bible-believing church for any length of time, you've heard someone say from the front, read your Bible, right? It would be like pastoral malpractice to not ever have that be said on a regular basis. So I think on one level, we've heard this like a million times, right? You know, recently, just this past week, actually, I was reading the, print, the recent print edition of Christianity Today. And they had this article in there talking about this study that was done with the Harvard University Center of Human Flourishing and the American Bible Association, the American Bible Society. And what this study was showing is that through 2020, kind of looking at the correlation and the effects of regular Bible reading and not regular Bible reading on mental health and social well-being. And the study was showing that those that regularly engage with Scripture on a regular basis had significant increases in mental and social health. And in particular, those that regularly read their Bibles scored 33 points higher as far as how hopeful one was versus those that did not regularly read their Scriptures. Now, statistics should not be the main reason why we engage the text. I just point that out as one example to show that the nourishment, that the, the nourishment that we need from God is found in Jesus and his word. Now, with all that said, I recognize that, yes, in the midst of especially this craziness, that it can be hard to find ways to regularly engage the text. You know, it's kids, there's jobs, there's school, there's work, all sorts of things competing for our attention. How can we establish like a regular habit and rhythm of engaging with the text? Now, I have this little acronym that I came up with this week. I kind of throw this out there. Maybe it'll be helpful. Maybe we'll never say it again, but here it is. It's this acronym called READ, right? R-E-A-D. Hopefully this is like a helpful way for you to begin to engage or continue to engage with the text. Now, don't worry about trying to remember this all right now. We'll put it online with the, the sermon or the notes or whatever on our website. But READ, starting with R. R for routine, Routine. I think it's really crucial and really important that there is some level of routine in our engagement with Scripture. And what I mean by this is that especially for those that perhaps have yet to really establish a regular routine, 
One thing that I found to be helpful is finding ways of inserting in your already existing daily routine a moment, a regular moment, where you can engage with the text. For me, this happens actually the night before, eat, the, the, before I go to bed. Essentially what I try to do, I'm not perfect at it, is I put my phone to bed, just like I put my kids to bed, so the phone gets put to bed in a drawer in another room, and it doesn't turn on until after I've engaged with the text, engaged with the scripture. And at the same time, what I try to do, again, I'm not perfect at this, but what I try to do on a regular basis is the night before, put my Bible next to where I make my coffee each morning. Because the first thing I have to do every morning is make some coffee. No questions asked. So I'm already going to make coffee, right? I'm already going to go to that kitchen counter and start the hot water, and I do like a one-cup pour-over kind of thing, so it takes a little bit more time than just a regular push-the-button thing. So I have my Bible already open, and so I'm greeted in the morning with my coffee and the scriptures. And it's already kind of a part of my established routine, right? And I think that can be really helpful for those who have yet to figure out ways to regularly incorporate that in your life. Think about your daily routine. Where can you already insert like a moment, just to kind of like prime yourself, to kind of get you going in the right direction. So that your view and the way that you think about the world is not first shaped by what's on the media or social media, but the first thing that you engage with each morning is the scriptures. Perhaps, well, maybe it's while you're doing laundry. And instead of just kind of scrolling through Instagram or doing whatever that might waste time, you get an audio Bible app. And it's something you already have to do but then you're doing and, and engaging with the text as you're doing something you already have to do on a regular basis. Now, I, I would say, don't just, you know, hopefully it grows from that. It becomes more than that. But I think that's a great way to start and begin. So that's R for routine. E, for experiment. Well, on one level, well, I think it is important to have a regular rhythm, a regular routine. Experimenting. Exploring. What are different ways that I perhaps can engage the text? Maybe it's trying like a new Bible version this year. A different English version. Maybe it's maybe buying a commentary or looking at some of the Bible Project videos to get, go a little bit deeper with the text. I know I have a really good friend who has like a kind of a, a tight, full work schedule where he has to be at work really early in the morning and his work days are really long. So it's really hard for him to have, you know, adequate time each morning or at really any point in the day to engage with the scriptures. But he does have a 30-minute commute. And one thing that he tried experimenting with was getting an audio Bible, and instead of listening to like talk radio on his way to work, he has 30 minutes to be in his truck on his way and just hear the scriptures. It's a beautiful way of experimenting. He had to figure out what would work with his schedule. And I think there's a level where experimenting does need to take place. In addition, though, A, A for ask. What I mean by that is ask questions. And as we ask questions, this implies that we're in community dialoguing about the text, not just on our own. Ask tons of questions. I mean, especially as we begin the book of Genesis. I mean, just in the first few handful of chapters in Genesis, you have seemingly two different creation accounts, a talking snake on page three, these things called the Nephilim, people living 900 years old, and people over 100 having babies. Now, don't tell me you don't have questions when you engage with the scriptures. We all have questions. And might I just submit to you that as we journey through the scriptures together, do not be afraid to ask questions. Do not be afraid to just throw your hand up like, I don't get this. This makes no sense. Now, don't just do that on your own with a Google search. Do that in community. 
Let's be a community that is not afraid to dialogue and push back and ask questions and mutually learn from one another. So routine, experiment, A, ask questions, D, discipline. I do think there's, now please hear my heart in this. I'm not trying to be like heavy-handed with this, but I do think there's a certain amount of discipline required over the long haul where we begin to see true payoff, if you will, when we're engaging with the text. I remember growing up in my parents' home. My parents are wonderful, amazing, love them to death. I remember my parents, every morning I would come downstairs and every single morning my mom would be at the kitchen table, Bible open, reading, journaling, engaging with the text every single morning. I would come downstairs, and in the adjacent room, my dad kind of had like a home office. Same thing. In his chair, Bible open, engage with the text. Now, my parents aren't pastors or ministry leaders. They're faithful servants in the same church for over 25 years. But they love Jesus, and they love his word. Now, when you're in middle school and high school, you think your parents are just weird, and they just do things that you're like, what, what the heck? What's the point of that? But it left an impression on me. The faithfulness, the discipline over so many years and seeing how God's word meant so much to them and how it was not just something they did every morning, but they lived out in their life, that it matched their character. And it's through that regular rhythm, that regular discipline that was an example to me that I hope to emulate to my kids, to emulate to the people that are around me. See, like for me growing up, the only time I really engaged with the scriptures was in like two places, Luke 11 There's that story where Jesus teaches about prayer, ask, seek, knock. And I would hijack that passage out of its context and just apply that to like, I'm asking that I would hit a home run in my baseball game. I'm asking that I would score a touchdown or something related with sports. Or Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I would write that little verse reference. You know, I've always always loved wearing baseball hats. And write that on the top of my baseball hat as like a good luck charm. And that was like the only way I ever engaged with the scriptures, I treated the Bible essentially like a fortune cookie, just a little snippet for me. And friends, I would just say, that is not how Jesus is calling us to engage with the text. That there's a level of regular discipline, a regular habit of engaging with the scriptures. Now, all that to say, there's like that read sort of acronym there. Hopefully that's helpful. Just a couple of side things with that. As we're journeying into this new year, whatever rhythm you begin to adopt, I would say a couple kind of quick things with this. Write down kind of what your rhythm is going to be. And don't just like shoot for the moon. Start small. Start where you're at, not where you think you should be. Write it down and then tell someone about it to kind of build some accountability with that. Write it down and tell someone about it. And try to keep each other accountable. One of my best friends, we're kind of doing this, uh, kind of read the Bible. It's a a five-day-a-week plan, so it gives us two days off. But We're going to be able to read the Bible still in a whole year. And we're just, through text and through phone conversations, he lives on the East Coast, we're going to keep each other accountable through this year. And I would invite you to do that. And if you need someone to do that, I would love to be that annoying person that is going to keep you accountable on a weekly basis, if not more, to engage with the Scripture. So I'm, I'm dead serious on that. We need to keep each other accountable with all this. Now, with all that to say, look at, at, me, look at with me what happens next in the text. Verse 45. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now, verse 45, you got to check this out. Look at what Jesus says there. 
he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Before they could understand the scriptures, Jesus had to open their minds. Now, think about this. In our cultural moment, having an open mind is like this virtue above all virtues, right? Being open-mindedness. It's all this talk about being open-minded, which I think is good to a certain degree. And oftentimes, though, Christianity gets kind of pegged as being closed-minded, narrow-minded. But look at what Jesus is doing here in the text. In order to engage with the text, in order to truly understand the scriptures, Jesus has to open our minds. That perhaps the way that we have been viewing and seeing the world is not exactly how Jesus would have us have a perspective on the world. Perhaps the way that we are viewing ourselves and God and our relationships is not the way that Jesus would have us view those things. That in order to truly begin to understand what God has to say to us, that we would cry out, God, open my mind. How with humility and with dependence, not coming to the text saying, I'm going to figure this out, but God, would you expose the areas in my life? Would you expose the tendencies in my life that don't align with your will and heart? Open my mind to understand these things. And this is where we need his perspective. I'm a, I fear that oftentimes that as followers of Jesus, our perspective on life is more dictated by the media or social media or whatever is on the news than the scriptures himself and what Jesus has for us. And I say this with, you know, as, as much, like, compassion as possible, that may we be a people where our minds are shaped by Jesus and not this world. Where our relationships and the way we view God and one another and the way we view the circumstances, the crazy circumstances of this world would be filtered through the text, would be filtered through what God says about these things. And at the heart of this, that our minds would be opened in 2021, God, that you would open our minds in a deeper way. No matter if you've been engaging with the scriptures for decades or you've never really ever done it yourself, that our minds would be open to what God has for us. Which leads me to my third and final point, power. Power. Especially in a time like this, in the new year, right? We get advertisement after advertisement, post after post, on how to be the best you in 2021, to change your life, to make radically different choices, to just have a, a better life overall. And not all of it is necessarily bad. But we're bombarded constantly, especially this time of year, how we can self-improve and how we can just be a better person. Which, again, not down on all of that necessarily. Even this past week, I came across... A LeBron James ad for a mindfulness app. LeBron James on mindfulness. Again, not necessarily down on mindfulness, but LeBron James is a basketball player, right? Or this past week, I came across a tag for American Eagle Jeans that said this. American Eagle Jeans. We believe in the ones who reveal their true selves to the world. Those who won't be contained by someone else's labels. Real individuals with passion and purpose. We make jeans for you. On a pair of jeans! My point is we're constantly bombarded with this messaging of be the best you, change yourself, self-improvement. But if anything, like this past year, that has been filled with struggle and pain and sadness and hurt and a whole bunch of doubt and fear and uncertainty, we have come to realize, I hope, that we are not able to change ourselves that we do not have the power in and of ourselves to improve our own lives, to change who we are, 
apart from something or rather someone outside of ourselves. That's why I love what the text says in verse 48 and following. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with what? Power. You are clothed with power from on high. What's Jesus referring to? Well, you continue on. Luke is really the first volume of a two-part sequence. You continue on into volume two, which is the book of Acts. It's the Holy Spirit. God's empowering presence. The third person of the Trinity comes to empower his followers to then live out the mission of God in the world. That Jesus is saying, do not live this life apart from my personal empowering presence, the Holy Spirit, in your life. Do not try to make changes or improvement or live in such a way where you can just kind of muster it up on your own strength. Even as I'm talking about engaging with the scriptures, don't try to do that just on your own. That there would be, yes, discipline, but also dependence. Dependence on the power of God to animate you from the inside out. That you would cry out, God, I need your power. I need your strength. The book of Romans says, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in each of us as his followers. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside all of us, animating us, empowering us, leading and guiding us. And God, that would be our prayer. So Father, as we think about these things, as we begin this new year, with all of the uncertainty, with all of the pain and with all of the hurt, God, would you empower your people? Would you help us to recognize that apart from you, you say we can do nothing? And that Jesus, by the power of your spirit, that you would not only just remind us again of how good you are, but God, that you would empower us to live the lives that you have called each of us to live. Jesus, we long for more of you in our lives. We long for so many things to change. We long to be together. We long for deeper relationships. With the psalmist, we cry out, how long, O Lord? And God, in the meantime, would you help us by the power of your spirit to be faithful with each day that you've given us. Each day is a gift. So Holy Spirit, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.